Welcome back to the program. For a while now, technology has seemed to focus on one aspect or another of information. Everything from Google to Facebook to Instagram to all aspects of the sharing economy are essentially all about trying to achieve perfect information. Slowly, the emphasis is beginning to shift. Now, voice recognition, robots, drones, and a renewed interest in artificial intelligence are all pointing to a new technological direction. Just as we've had to readjust to the creative destruction and social shifting of the information economy, now the automation or AI economy is upon us. What will it change? How will it reshape the social contract? And perhaps most of all, how will it reshape the nature of work? Nicholas Carr, the best-selling author of The Shallows and The Big Switch, now turns his attention to this future in his new book, The Glass Cage, Automation and Us. It is my pleasure to welcome Nicholas Carr back to this program to talk about The Glass Cage. Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Jeff. Good to have you here. When we think about robots, are we also thinking about artificial intelligence? Is there a nexus, a link between the two, so that any conversation about robotics and what robots can do really leads into a broader conversation about artificial intelligence? I think there is, particularly if you take a very you know, broad definition of artificial intelligence. Um, so not to mean the perfect replication of the human mind, because I don't think we're actually anywhere near there, but, but it's, I would argue that computers are now displaying a form of intelligence um, in its computer intelligence rather than human intelligence, but they're able to increasingly... Uh, we can program computers to sense the environment, uh, to, to take in, not only take in information, but analyze information, even to make judgments uh, in decisions. And so we're seeing automation as a result move into all sorts of areas uh, that we used to think of as being completely the, the province of human beings. So white collar jobs, professional jobs, uh, jobs require, requiring thinking and judgment, and also into all sorts of aspects of our personal lives as we come to draw on this power to kind of guide us through our day. I suppose if we think of it in the broader context of the science fiction that we've all grown up with, the idea was that these robots, that this automation was to free us from drudgery and allow us more time to think, to be creative, to do those things that created pleasure and happiness. And often it does. And certainly often in the past when you had a machine that would take over some routine manual chore, uh, that would free people up to, to think more interesting thoughts, do more interesting things. But it's a fallacy to believe that automation, that, that transferring work and activities from people to machines or computers always lifts us up. In fact, what we're seeing, and you can look across uh, the economy, across all sorts of jobs, what we're seeing is, is actually this new wave of automation in many cases is reducing the challenge people face, reducing uh, their, their kind of motivation and also opportunity to, th to think uh, at a higher plane or to work at a higher plane. And instead, it, it's kind of turning us all more and more into computer operators, into people who monitor screens, enter data into, uh, into the computer, uh, and then at times take over in emergencies when the, when the system fails. But uh, a lot of the jobs that are kind of given to us, to people, as we automate more and more work, aren't 
the most interesting jobs. And so it's, it, automation can push us down in terms of our, the challenges we face and the work we do, as well as lift us up. And it depends on how it's designed and how it's used. It's interesting to see what's happened with respect to pilots today. We're told that for pilots, if there's a conflict between what air traffic control says and what the computer says, they're to rely on the computer. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and I think it, uh, you know, the, obviously the job of the pilot and the air traffic controller and everything are very complex, but uh, we're, cer- we're certainly seeing in recent years the kind of long-term trend that we saw, that we've seen with autopilot systems, which has been to make flying safer, we're starting to see a different phenomenon as, as computers take over more and more of the, uh, of the flying and the, the, the pilot is engaged less and less. Uh, there, there are signs that pilots are, are, are losing situational awareness. They're kind of tuning out because they're not being called upon uh, to fly the plane manually as much. And there's even a, among some pilots, at least, there's, there's evidence of a kind of diminishment of, of skill simply because they're not allowed to practice practices as much. And so on those fortunately rare occasions when the automation fails or when it cuts off or when some very strange weather event or something happens and pilots are suddenly called upon to take manual control of the plane, uh, we seem to have created a situation where we've increased the odds that the people will make a mistake simply because we've handed over too much control and responsibility to the machine. To the extent that history tells us that technology will win out, that automation in this case will win out, should we be approaching this not from the point of view of what are the dangers or the problems inherent in automation, but simply the ways in which we can find new ways to interact with it and new skills to develop as this automation comes online? Well, I would argue that those aren't actually two different uh, challenges or two different tasks. I, I think I think we can, it's true that, you know, technology is not going to slow down, progress is not going to slow down, more in, computers are going to get uh, more intelligent, they're going to take over, they're going to be able to take over more of our work, but that doesn't mean we don't have any influence over the course of this. Actually, I think the decisions we make as designers of these systems, as programmers of the software, and as users of them, make a huge difference. Uh, there are two uh, I talk about it, you know, in the book, two very different approaches to this. One is called technology-centered design, where you start by saying, what can the computer do? And then anything that's left over goes to the human being. And unfortunately, I think that's the dominant uh, method right now. But there's a very different approach called human-centered design, where you start by saying, what are, what are people good at? You know, and, and look at our creativity, our conceptual thinking, our critical thinking, and then design the software and design the system to help us uh, do our best to fill in our flaws and fill in the gaps and, 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 and aid us in, in, in working smart, uh, facing difficult challenges, increasing our skills. Um, and then if, if you take that approach, I think you get a better balance between human skill and talent and the enormous benefits that automated technologies and computers can bring to work as well. As we look at this through the world of human-centered design, isn't there something inherently subjective in that, in trying to determine the skills that human beings can make the greatest contribution and the skills in which human beings can best interact with computers? I think there's, 
you know, there's always going to, we can't nail those questions down perfectly because it's a, it's kind of a moving target, but, but there are, if you, if you look at kind of what scholars and of automation, people in what's called the human factors field uh, have found is that there's all sorts of fairly straightforward ways to make automation more humanistic rather than simply mechanistic. And, and for instance, um, Instead of uh, in, instead of allowing a pilot to simply turn on the flight automation at, after takeoff and then let it go until until they have to turn it back on for landing, you can design the computer to hand back manual control to the pilot every once in a while during the flight at random times. And we know from psychology that if a person knows that they're going to have to take over at some random moment, that they, they stay much more aware, stay much more involved with the task, um, and perform better, practice their talents more. And there's all sorts of ways uh, you can design these systems to encourage that kind of involvement and engagement by human beings, uh, all sorts of ways you can make sure that people continue to learn and refine their talents. But if you come in with the, the attitude that uh, – we just want to automate everything that we can possibly automate and push it, push automation and, and computers forward as far as possible, as fast as possible. You begin to lose sight of the still very important role that people play in all of these processes. In this brave new world, can we look to human beings playing a role that we can't yet even imagine? It's sort of reminiscent of Socrates talking upon the invention of the written word, that somehow that would be negative, that it would cause people to forget, that it would cause people to, to forget how to tell stories once there was the written word. It's impossible to predict all that, you know, technologies. It's impossible to predict where technology is going to go in the future and how that's going to influence human behavior um, Human, humans' roles, humans' talent. Um, it's simply unknowable. But, what we, but we don't live in the future. We live in the present. And, and our experience of life is, is determined by what we do now. And I think if we begin with the assumption that people's, the, the richness of people's lives, the richness of their experience, the richness of the challenges they face, their ability to master difficult skills, that all of these are important simply because they're important to the quality of our lives, then it seems to me that that's the, 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 the foundation for building a world, a technologic uh, world of enormous technological sophistication that is still a world we want to live in. When we look at something like the self-driving car, talk a little bit about the concerns you have with respect to things like that, and even some of the moral concerns that you've expressed with regard to something like that. Yeah, the you know when Google announced that it had built a car that can, in many real-world situations, drive itself, that was an incredibly amazing feat of engineering. It's something that you know very recently people didn't even think you could do. So the first thing that has to be said is that automation often shows us the the incredible talents of people and in, in their ingenuity. But there are, there are questions that are raised by the self-driving car that, that we, as a society, we need to really think about. Uh, one is that as important as the efficiency of driving and the safety of driving is, we also have to recognize that actually a lot of people enjoy driving. <laughs> it gives them pleasure. You know, when you're stuck in traffic, it's horrible. But, but if, you do, if you look at studies that have been done, 
people, by and large, really kind of get pleasure from driving. So we have to balance uh, our understanding of human enjoyment, human experience with other things as we think about uh, whether or not we want to turn all driving chores over to computers. But we also, if we get to the point where we do have completely autonomous vehicles, uh, those vehicles are going to have to make difficult decisions in the real world. You know, if, if you're facing an accident, what do you do? Do you, do, you hit the, do you hit the person or the animal or do you go off the road and, and put yourself at risk? We're going to have to start programming ethics, moral codes into computers. And that raises the question, you know, how do you do that? And also, whose moral codes are you putting into the machine? Well, we're already seeing in the arenas of Wall Street and things like program trading the results of what happens when computers take on these responsibilities without any kind of moral or ethical or broader considerations. That's right. And um, what, we've, what we've seen as you know, automated trading has took a, taken over, high-speed trading, it's not just the loss of people's jobs in that field, but we're, we're creating a situation that is very hard for human beings to control. Um, uh, so, so when you have a flaw in the software, and there have been several instances of this, there can be quite catastrophic chains of events that happen because these machines can trade so many stocks and other financial instruments so quickly, uh, you, can ha- you can put the entire market at risk if they go kind of haywire. Um, and, and then there's also the question of, uh, of manipulation and, and, you know, what exactly, who is, what, how exactly are all these machines being programmed? You know, we don't have, as the public, we don't have access to uh, their algorithms, their particular code. So exactly, you know, what intents, what, what intent, what motivation is programmed into, into these machines? And is, are those in the best interest of society? Are they in the best interest of a healthy economy? These things become, these questions become more and more salient as computers take over more and more uh, very important activities in, in society. Is there a danger of confusing the philosophical conversations with the economic ones? In other words, it's one thing to talk about the nature of work and how humans will be impacted in terms of their mental abilities, their physiological abilities. It's quite another to talk about it in the context simply that robots and automation are taking jobs away. If we look at auto assembly plants today, we see something that's akin to automation on steroids. Should we be careful about confusing the philosophical and the economic and if we do that, does it in some way dilute the conversation? Well, I think it's. I think it makes the discussion much more difficult um, because there, there's no doubt that there are often very good economic, very good financial reasons for businesses to to push automation forward very, very quickly to invest heavily into in it. Obviously, a lot of companies. The whole reason they invest in automation is to reduce their need for for workers to reduce to increase labor productivity, and that's how the, the economy works. and And in general, in the past, even if that displaced some jobs, it tended to create big pools of other jobs. Now that dynamic doesn't seem so far to have, to be going on with computers. We're we're taking away more and more jobs, but we're not creating the vast new categories of work that we saw, for instance, with uh, the mechanization of factories during the Industrial Revolution. So, so, so even at an economic level, there are there are lots of troubling. There, there are lots of good things, and there are lots of troubling uh, phenomena going on. But I don't, even though, 
even though it, it might be tempting to completely disconnect that from discussions of uh, human well-being, human experience, the philosophical side of things, I think, even though it's difficult to combine them, in order to really think fully about the future of technology and the future of society, we need to grapple with both of those things. We need to grapple with the economic side, and we also have to look at how are, are these technologies changing the terms of our existence, and what's good about that, what's bad about that, and only by, only by grappling with these very difficult challenges are we, are we going to be able to, I think, make smart decisions as individuals about what technology we use, but also as a society about how we think about automation. As you look at this, is this something that's going to have to happen at an individual level, at a corporate level, or is this something that public policy needs to take on? That's a, that's a tricky question because, you know, my... <laughs> Even, even given all my concerns about this, I, I would be worried about, you know, I am worried about having too much attempt to have kind of government fashioning where innovation goes and, and, and how businesses invest in these things. I, I, think, I think we do need to have a freedom to innovate, a freedom to push technology forward. Um, so I think, I think the real, you know, big focus needs to be how individuals make their decisions. You know, ultimately, the types of software and gadgets we buy and use also drives the, you know, what the companies that make those things do, and also has to look at the, uh, the corporate side of things. Uh, but having said that, I do think that if we see kind of large effects playing out on the economic side, a uh, continued hollowing of the middle class, as it's sometimes referred to, because um, more and more, not only blue collar, but white collar jobs are, are being automated, then we may have to think about some of, the, uh, some of the policies we have in place that, for instance, give tax benefits for, the, for companies to invest in automated machinery, uh, machinery that takes away uh, uh, people's jobs. And and it may not come to that, but I, th I think, you know, if we do see a, a draining of good jobs from the economy, social pressures are going to kind of make, a, are going to force us to have to act, to have to rethink in, in a basic way the value we place on labor. Uh, because over the last, since, <laughs> uh, over the last 40 or 50 years, kind of as a society, we, I, I think we've had diminishing respect for labor and the importance of labor, and we may have to change culturally, uh, socially, and maybe even politically. Of course, the overlay that makes this conversation so much more difficult is the fear that people have, fear of change, fear of technology, and the way that demagogues can take advantage of that in ways that result in bad public policy. That's right. There's always, you know, any new technologies are always um, approached by people in two different ways. One is, is a great deal of enthusiasm, uh, and certainly we see that in society today, and even a kind of sense that we're soon going to be delivered into a utopia. Um, and then on the other hand, there's, there's fear of change, uh, there's fear, you know, robots are going to take over and we're going to be their slaves. And so, so we have to... I think it's important not to fall into either of those camps. And I mean, I'm a, I've become a skeptic and a cr critic of technology. That doesn't mean I'm anti-technology. Uh, I, I think being skeptical and being critical of, uh, of 
of technology is really the best attitude to take right now because the the computer is infusing so many aspects of our lives and of society that simply rushing forward blindly strikes me as being the absolutely the wrong approach um, even though I completely agree that there's a uh, there's a danger in, in going too far in the other direction where, where you simply begin to stifle progress and innovation uh, because you, uh, out of sheer fear of change. Should we be afraid that the technology is moving so much faster than the ability of any institution or organization or individual to come to grips with it, be it in the realm of public policy or the corporate level or the individual level, that it's all just moving faster than anybody can adapt to? I think we should be concerned about that or at least aware of it. I I don't think that's necessarily a new phenomenon. Um, I think for at least 100 years, if you look at the arrival of the electric grid, for instance, 100 years ago, when everything became electrified over the course of a couple of decades, we had the same challenge. And on the one hand, it's, it's, a, it's a negative thing because you, you create this gap between law and social norms and technological possibilities. But it's, there's also a, a good side to the fact that our political system, our laws kind of evolve in a more uh, measured pace than technology, because that means that that gives a kind of buffer zone where before we rush to adapt everything to the technology, we get some experience. We see what really happens, and then we begin to evolve our laws and our, and our norms, our behavioral norms to the technology. So it's, it's not always a bad thing to have forces in society that slow progress down a bit to more of a human scale and a human speed. The interesting thing to watch in all of this, and we're seeing it with mobile phone technology right now, is the developing world, the third world, which is kind of skipping a lot of the steps that we've long since adapted to and moving ever more quickly into this technological world. That's right. And, and there's, there are many good things about that. I, I mean, there are areas of the world that didn't didn't have the money to invest in, for instance, landline telephone lines. Um, and so we're at an economic disadvantage because of the lack of communication infrastructure. So when you come along with cellular technology, which allows you to build out a robust telephone system without as much investment in telephone poles and lines, that can be a good, a very good thing because it, it does allow a society to kind of leapfrog up to uh, a, a level of technological sophistication that, that, you know, is good for the people, is good for their economic opportunities. Um, but in the end, you know, every society faces the same trade-offs between the good effects of technology and the bad effects between, uh, you know, getting, uh, getting the efficiency and productivity advantages and also possibly putting important elements of their culture at risk. Um, so I don't, I think the, the you know the many of the questions are different and many of the trade-offs are different but wherever you look in the world you know people as individuals and as societies are going to have to grapple with the very difficult problems and challenges raised by by a very fast um, progress of, of technology and in particular computing technology 
And finally, Nicholas, within the context of this whole discussion of automation and artificial intelligence, all the things we've been talking about, where should we be looking to as the kind of laboratory for all of this? Where are things moving the most quickly and that we should be looking to as the proverbial canary in the coal mine? Um, well, that's a good question. I, I think one thing, one of the unexpected things that's that's arrived recently is the fact that a lot of the fastest innovation, the fastest progress in, in computing technology is not happening in companies anymore. It used to be, you know, companies were out in front, you'd hire IBM and you'd get the latest systems. Now it's, you know, people and kids with cell phones in, in the companies that cater to them that are really pushing uh, the technology forward. So uh, one good place to look is, is simply how kids who have who have grown up with the technology are very adept at it, how they use it, uh, how it changes their life, how it brings benefits and how it brings problems. And, and that might be, you know, the best laboratory we have at the moment. Nicholas Carr, his book is The Glass Cage, Automation and Us. It's just out from W.W. Norton. Nicholas, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 